Stand for the reading of God's Word. I need a Bible. Thanks. Turn to Luke chapter 13, please. We'll read verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. You may be seated. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) Father, we thank you for these verses we get to dig into this morning. They flow uh, clearly from the verses from last week, so I'd also ask that you bring to mind the things that we covered last week in verses 1 through 5 as we build on them. Help us to understand repentance and how fruit is produced from it, as Jesus discusses here. Such an important and foundational truth for the Christian life. Thank you for this parable, all the things that Jesus taught, and, and it's such a privilege to be able to center the preaching of your word uh, for each of these people. Um, and I don't know that if I'd say a privilege, but so much as a responsibility for me as I share it, and I wouldn't want to shortchange it, Lord. And so bring to mind anything that's not in my notes that I should share and, and restrain me from sharing anything, even if it is in my notes, that you wouldn't have for your people. Give each person a receptive heart to what you say. I think this morning there's a clear discussion of salvation and how saved people have repented and produced fruit as a result, and so should there be any unsaved people here, convict them, bring them to faith, and for those who are saved, I pray this sermon could be an encouragement regarding the fruit that's produced in their lives and the greater confidence that we can have in our salvation. We thank you for this time, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, was, I missed a little bit of the announcements. Did we talk, normally family camp is pretty well established, but it's been kind of up in the air what it would look like regarding things reopening. And so we do have family camp this week. There's no choir practice, correct? Okay. <laughs> I said there's no choir practice, and Crystal went, there's not. So, was, so, so there's no choir practice, no midweek study or anything like that. We would encourage you to come out and join us Wednesday night, 6 p.m. We're going to have a potluck out there, a nice time of fellowship. So if you can't make it the rest of the time, we're going to be driving up as a family most days. Please at least come out Wednesday night to join us at 6 p.m. Then the other nights we'll be having some Bible studies as well. So this morning's sermon is titled, Bear Fruit in Keeping with Repentance. Bear Fruit in Keeping with Repentance. Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. We find ourselves at Luke 13. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9. Recently, I shared with you, it might have been last week, that I enjoy going verse by verse, but we end up looking at these um, sections, these verses in chunks, and it can lead us to look at them independently of the verses around them, or in, in a sense, uh, cause us to look at these verses out of context. And so it's important to remember that, that every verse is flowing from the verses before it, and that's particularly important with this morning's verses, 
6 through 9 because of the way that they flow from verses 1 through 5. In fact, what's interesting, I always try to listen to a couple sermons on the verses that I'm going to be covering. And most, and I think almost every single pastor I found who preached on these verses actually started his sermon back at the end of Luke 12 and then preached all the way through Luke 13, verse 9. So in verses 1 through 5, what is the main command that Jesus gives? The main thing he tells us we must do. If you summarize it in one word, repent. Yes, exactly, repent. So Jesus says, you're looking at these people who died in these two tragedies, and you're wondering if they died because they're worse than everyone else who lived, and you're asking the wrong question. Instead of trying to figure out why this happened, you should be asking whether you have repented because these people perished physically. You too will perish physically. But if you don't repent, then you will also perish yeah, spiritually or eternally. And now understand verses 6 through 9 flow from that. So he adds in these verses this discussion of fruit and how fruit must be produced if we've repented. So to make this perfectly clear in verses 1 through 5, Jesus commands people to repent. And then in verses 6 through 9, he reveals that if people have repented, then they will produce fruit. And I want to remind you of something we've discussed before because it's a One of the main points of these verses, and as you go verse by verse, you encounter things multiple times that have been addressed before, but you can be confident that if we're seeing it for a second time, then apparently God wants us to discuss it for a second time. And this brings us to lesson one. Repentance involves stopping and starting. Repentance involves stopping and starting. You hear the word repent, and you typically think of what? What word comes to mind? Stop, stop, or stopping. I only heard one person. You guys, you hear repent and you think of stopping, right? You tell someone, hey, you need to repent. And then they, they understand you're saying that they need to stop something. Or we think of repenting, we think about stopping something. Turn to Luke 3, a few chapters to the left. Here's the context for these verses. John the Baptist is performing baptisms. He's not performing what we would call Christian baptisms. In other words, he's not performing baptisms that allow people to identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Every Christian baptism you observe here behind that curtain in our baptismal is a Christian baptism in that you're seeing people who are identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what every baptism is. John the Baptist couldn't be performing Christian baptisms because what hadn't taken place yet? Yeah, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So people couldn't yet identify with it. And so instead... He's fittingly performing baptisms of repentance. And I say it's fitting because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He is preparing the way for Christ or for people to receive Christ as the Messiah or as their Savior. And the best way for that to happen would be for John to preach repentance so that people see their sinfulness and need for a Savior. I mean, what better way could John prepare people for the Savior than to help people see their sins and need to be saved? So he's preaching repentance. Many of the Jews who were uh, aware of John's ministry and even coming out to observe him were trusting in their righteousness. Actually, that might not be the best way to say it. Some were trusting in their righteousness, but they were trusting in their descendancy from Abraham. They thought that they were good enough or deserved to go to heaven simply because they were descendants of Abraham. They saw no need to repent. And so one of the things that John tells them is you need to stop trusting in the fact that you're Jews or that you're descendants of Abraham. Look at verse 8 to see what John said to them. He says, Bear fruits 
in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And just notice this. One of the other reasons I want to look at these verses is because of the strong parallelism with the verses in Luke 13. John says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, which is almost identical to what Jesus says in Luke 13, I believe, verse 9. Now, John tells him two things. He tells them to repent and bear fruit, which typically doesn't seem to go together for us because bearing fruit means producing or starting something and repentance means stopping something. And so they almost seem uh, uh, mutually exclusive or, or opposites of each other. It's almost like to us think of telling a, you know, um, someone to walk in two different directions. But they go together. They, they go hand in hand. Uh, it's important for us to notice this so that we understand repentance. The main reason that I would say we fail to repent or fail to repent, um, let's say, successfully, and by that I mean to repent and stop something, uh, have a victory over a certain sin, is we stop without starting. We try to put off without putting on, and biblically speaking, that's what we're discussing here. Repentance involves putting off and also putting on putting on the fruit that must accompany what is stopped or put off. And the clearest passage is discussing this. You don't have to turn there. We have talked about this before. I want to go through it quickly. I just want some of these examples of Paul to sort of wash over you quickly so that you can catch this theme. It's in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, put away falsehood. So that's what you're going to stop. And then this is what you're going to start. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We're members one of another. So if you repent of lying, then the fruit you're going to produce is, you're, if you're going to repent of lying, you don't just stop talking altogether, right? You're going to put on speaking the truth or being accurate in what you say. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. That's what you're going to stop. And then this is what you start. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. And so if someone struggled with um, theft, and they said, well, I'm just going to stop stealing. If they only try to stop stealing and they don't start laboring or becoming generous so that they can give stuff to others or working diligently with their hands, then more than likely they're going to find themselves back stealing again. There must be some fruit that's produced or something they put on to take the place, or I like to say fill the vacuum that's created when that sin is stopped. Let no corrupt, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. So that's what you stop, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who fear. If you repent of corrupt talk, again, the solution isn't to stop talking altogether, but to strive to say things that are edifying or encouraging or build people up. Tying it all together, Ephesians 4.31, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put off from you along with all malice. And then he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. That's what you're going to put on or the fruit to be produced. Colossians 3, the other account, verse 5, put to death or put off what's earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and then put on all this. Colossians 3, 12, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's all the fruit that will be produced if we put off all of those sins. Now, with that in mind, turn back to Luke 13. 
And look with me at verse 6. After Jesus commands repentance in, uh, in the people's lives, he expects them to find fruit from them. If they have repented, he expects to see fruit produced in their lives. In verse 6, he tells this parable to communicate this. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. The word parable, it's related to our word parallel, because it's referring to taking an earthly story and putting it alongside a spiritual truth, or essentially using a physical story to illustrate or communicate a spiritual truth. And in this parable, pretty straightforward, the man represents God, the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Christ has been among the Jews. I believe because it says he's been lo- the man's been looking for three years, that this is coming up on the three-year mark of Jesus' ministry. He's been with the people that long, and he expects to see fruit, fruit from them after, after preaching among them, performing miracles among them, fulfilling prophecies among them, preaching repentance to them. So he comes expecting they have repented and now would be producing fruit. He doesn't find any fruit, though, so look what he says to the vine dresser in verse 7. Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So some trees are for decorations, but there's other trees, fruit trees, and uh, perhaps they're decorative, but you're expecting them to produce fruit, in this case, figs. And smart farmers are not going to allow fruitless trees to be taking up the space or um, nutrients from the ground that other trees that are producing fruit could be consuming all those precious nutrients. And so you're going to cut that tree down if you're a smart farmer and you're going to produce it, or excuse me, you're going to replace it with another fruit tree that is going to produce. And that's what's in view here. And so the Jesus listeners would have, would have understand this. They would have had less uh, interest in decorative trees than even we have. And so when he talks about a tree that's not producing fruit, all of his listeners would understand, just get rid of that worthless tree. You're going to replace it with something else that won't, won't take the nutrients from the other trees and that will, will produce fruit. And if we understand the symbolism, the point is pretty straightforward. For three years, Jesus has been waiting to see fruit from the nation of Israel Uh, Again, the three years that are mentioned there in verse 7 corresponding with the three years of Jesus' ministry, very reasonable that after being with them this long that they should be producing fruit by this point. And this brings us to lesson two. Fruit is an evidence of genuine repentance. Fruit is an evidence of genuine repentance. So think in terms of two types of repentance insincere temporary repentance and then sincere lasting repentance we have probably all seen insincere temporary repentance i believe all of us have probably engaged in insincere temporary repentance i I don't think any of us could say we've never had some point in our lives where we have decided to stop something you know perhaps there was a motion that we we were caught up in or there was some consequence that really hit us at that moment we said we're never going to do this again and then we find ourselves doing it again and that's insincere temporary repentance so not only have we seen it from others it is probably something that all of us have experienced to some some point when there's insincere temporary repentance there can also be strong emotions there can be vows and promises there can be crying but if there's no fruit accompanying it 
then it's not going to be sincere. It's not going to be lasting. Down the road, nothing will really have changed. We'll find ourselves or people will find themselves right back engaging in the same behavior that they were engaging in previously. Listen to these other New Testament verses that make the same point that fruit accompanies repentance or is the result of genuine repentance. In the parable of the soils, the seed represents the word of God. It falls on these different soils. And one of the evidences that the seed has actually penetrated a soil or a heart is that that soil ends up producing fruit as a result of the conviction that the, that the heart receives from the word. Matthew 13, 23, for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word of God. He understands it. And indeed, he bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another 60, and in another 30. So people who hear the word of God, so you say, well, how can you tell if people, if I was preaching, how can you tell if, if God's word is effective? I think any pastor would say, you sure don't look at people's faces or lives that Sunday morning, right? <laughs> you look at people's lives the following weeks or months or years to come. I've even heard some pastors say, you can't tell the effectiveness of your ministry until years later. You can't even look months later. You need to wait years to see if the, if the word you've been preaching has been effective in people's hearts. Paul taught this. Acts 26, 20, he said, Gentiles should repent and turn to God performing deeds or performing works in keeping with their repentance. And so if the Gentiles had actually repented or turned to God, then there would be fruit or works that are produced in their lives that serve as evidence of that sincere repentance. Ephesians 5, 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. So when we move from darkness to light through repentance and faith in Christ, fruit is produced that serves as evidence of that change in our lives. Colossians 1.5, the gospel, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the, the grace of truth. And so when the gospel has been preached, the evidence that people are saved isn't what they say right at that moment or how they respond right at that moment. The evidence, Paul says, is that the gospel is bearing fruit or producing works or deeds in people's lives that legitimize their salvation. I think this is the last example. Hebrews 12, it's the discipline chapter. And God doesn't discipline us because he's um, being mean, because he desires to make us miserable. He disciplines us because he loves us and he wants to bring about repentance in our lives. You don't experience trials because God wants to see repentance. You experience trials because God wants to see what? growth or maturity. Trials produce growth or maturity. They sanctify us. James 1 verses 2 through 4 makes that clear. Discipline is not given except to produce repentance in our lives. There is a sin that we have committed. God wants to see us turn from it. But here's the question. When God has disciplined us to see us, to see us repent of a sin in our lives, what is the evidence that we have actually repented? Well, listen to this verse, Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so his point, it's interesting, it seems God's discipline can be wasted 
on us. I know God's discipline has been wasted on me at times when I haven't learned from it and then had to go through the same thing again, be disciplined again until the fruit God wants. And I'm sure there are other things I still would go uh, experience discipline from that I haven't learned from. And so the evidence that, we, that God's discipline has been effective in our lives, that we have been trained by it, is that it produces the fruit of righteousness. Well, that, that's, that sounds odd, doesn't it? I mean, if God's discipline has been effective, wouldn't the effectiveness be that that sin has stopped? That we no longer engage in that behavior? Not according to Hebrews 12.11. According to Hebrews 12.11, the, the evidence is that there is accompanying fruit produced in our lives to show that we have been trained by God's discipline. Now, with that in mind, look back at our account to see how the vine dresser responds to the man, verse 8. This, this week, just to tell you ahead of time, I really grew to appreciate this verse. I really have been able to see it as a wonderful demonstration of God's kindness and compassion toward us. And I hope, they, I hope verse 8 might encourage you as much as it encouraged me this week. He answered him and he said, Sir, let that tree alone this year also until, until I dig around it and, and put on manure. Other Bibles say fertilizer. So the man, he represents God and he chooses not to cut down this tree yet, even though it's been fruitless. Instead, he wants to let it receive special care so that it hopefully produces fruit. And this brings us to lesson three. God is patient, part one, so we have time to repent and produce fruit. God is patient, part one, so we have time to repent and produce fruit. Another verse I was reminded of that um, encouraged me regarding God's patience with us, his, his graciousness with us, the way the Lord works has worked in my life. I hope the way you have felt the, word, the Lord work in your life is Matthew twelve twenty. Jesus said, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench, which means what? I mean, a bruised reed is not, not too useful, as it doesn't seem like there's much good left from it. A smoldering wick, I mean, it's about to go out, but it says right here that he's not going to do that. He's not going to break the reed. He's not going to put out that um, smoldering wick. He's not going to quench it. And I just take this to mean that God is not quick to do what with us? He's not quick to do what with us? He's not quick to give up on us. He's not, he's not quick to, to quit on us or write us off. He's going to keep working in our lives. He's going to keep helping us. He's going to be patient with us, shepherding us along. I can remember at least one time I was particularly frustrated some years ago with the congregation, um, probably none of you who are in here right at this moment. <laughs> and I went to talk to someone about it, and I just was really discouraged. And I, I felt like, I, you know, like almost like just kind of giving up. And this person says, well, you have two choices, you know, if should you do that, then you're essentially not being like Christ because Christ hasn't done that with you. He hasn't been like this with you. He's continued to shepherd you. He's continued to be patient with you. He's continued to, to bring you along. So if you want to be a shepherd, which is what a pastor is, then you need to continue to be patient with people and try to, try to bring them along versus giving up on them. And that really convicted me that that is what our Lord, I felt the Lord do with me Many times, I'm sure, I have frustrated him or discouraged him that he could have given up on me or written me off. Uh, times that I have betrayed him or sinned, given into temptation, uh, disappointed him, disappointed myself that I haven't grown the way that I thought I should, but yet the Lord has never given up on me. And that's what we see in these verses as well, that he keeps helping us, bringing us along um, so we can continue to produce fruit. Now, with that in mind, I want to explain farming in the Bible, so you can better appreciate these verses the way that I believe the Jews would have appreciated them. 
because they would have been familiar they would have had a familiarity with god's law that was even greater than our familiarity and i think it's only that familiarity with god's law that can allow us to understand these verses the way that jesus intended so listen to these verses about farming leviticus 19 23 to 25 says when you come into the land and you plant any kind of tree for food then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden so you plant a tree but you don't eat any of the fruit three years it shall be forbidden from you so for three years you're not going to eat any fruit from that tree and then you say okay well i guess you can start eating fruit from the tree in the fourth year not quite on the fourth year all of its fruit shall be holy an offering of praise to the lord so for the fourth year you leave the fruit alone and you don't look for any fruit from the tree in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you i am the lord your god so you have three years you leave the fruit alone on the tree the fourth year it's producing fruit but all of that fruit belongs to the lord the fifth year you come to the tree and that's the first year that you can start looking for fruit from that tree now the farmer in this parable has been looking for fruit from this tree for three years that doesn't mean the first three years of the tree's life that means the third year after the fifth year which means the the farmer came the fifth year looking for fruit he came the sixth year looking for fruit he came the seventh year looking for fruit for three years according to God's law he's been looking for fruit and still not found any which means this fig tree has been alive plenty of time to produce fruit I mean it's looking at going on seven eight years here it should have produced fruit by now now my understanding with fig trees why it was this way is they have this complex root structure and it takes time for them to develop but three years or seven or eight years total would have been plenty of time and it shows just how patient this man has been with this tree up to this point the owner had I guess all I'm trying to say is this the owner had every reason to cut the tree down this tree has the owner has been unbelievably gracious with this tree it should have been producing by this point there was no reason that any let's say wise farmer in fact it would only be the foolish farmer they would continue to look at this tree and expect fruit from it by this point anyone else would have given up by now but this is what God does with us second Peter 3 9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness he's patient toward you he's not willing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance and so he waits longer with us I'm very thankful that God was as patient with me as he was that he allowed me to come to salvation in my early 20s far later than I'm sure I deserved to be saved I'm thankful that he waited as long as he did that he didn't return that he didn't judge the earth prior to my conversion and so just like the man in the parable had every right to cut the tree down God has every right to cut us down just like the man in the parable was patient with the tree to see if it would produce fruit God is patient with us to see that we would repent and produce fruit now at this point how's God sounding what are some words that come to mind I'd like to hear some responses gracious what else patient merciful compassionate long-suffering slow to anger someone say loving loving now look at verse 9 for the balance then if it should bear fruit next year well and good but if not you can cut it down and what do we see here the balance we see the balance here don't we 
So God wants us to repent. He will wait for that to happen, but he's not going to wait what? God is long-suffering. He's patient. I've heard it said the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they still turn. He's not waiting forever. As kind and patient as long-suffering, merciful, all the other words you said, compassionate, loving, as God looks in verse 8, I would say he looks equally severe, just in this verse. His patience comes to an end, and if we haven't repented and produced fruit by then, then we are cut down. And this is far from the only place in Scripture making this point. I go so far as to say that this is a theme in Scripture. Matthew 3.10, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Matthew 7.19, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. John 15.2, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. Spurgeon said, this is a powerful quote, There is a time for felling or cutting down fruitless trees, and there is an appointed season season for cutting down and casting into the fire the useless sinner. So there's only so long that God puts up with people not producing fruit or not serving him. There's a point their lives come to an end and then they're cast into the fire. And this relates to something we see in these verses and all the other verses about God being patient. So we have time to repent. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. God is patient, part two, even when he knows people won't repent. God is patient even when he knows people won't repent. Something that surprises me about these verses and other verses dealing with God's patience. I mean, why, why would we wait on a fruit tree? I had this tree in front of my house in California that I waited to grow, and it never grew the whole time we were there. It was the same size over six years. Some people that apparently knew more about trees than me came and told me that it had to do with there not being another tree. I don't even know if this is true or not. The bees could go between to pollinate or something. And, and so this tree stayed the same size in front of my house, never grew. And The point is, I was waiting because I didn't know whether that tree was ever going to grow. And that's why we wait. That's why we're patient with people. But God knows. He knows ahead of time whether the tree is going to produce fruit or not. And so it's something that surprises me. Why would he be patient with people that he knows are not going to repent, that he knows are not going to produce fruit? He's patient even when he knows that's not in their future. Turn to Genesis 15. We won't turn back to Luke 13, so I can show you an example that comes to mind for me and then explain the application for us. Turn to Genesis 15 for what I think is probably one of the best examples in Scripture. There are a few examples I could give you, but this is one of the best. And then I'll show you the other example that sticks out in my mind and then the application for us. So here's the context for these verses in Genesis 15. God made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. And one of the most important parts of that covenant was the land that God was going to give to Abraham and to his descendants. Uh, That's what was known as the land of Canaan. And this land is filled with, uh, obviously, Canaanites. God repeats the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15 and further elaborates on it. And look with me in Genesis 15, beginning at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So, so first, Abraham's told there's this land he's going to receive. Now, if God tells you that you and your descendants are going to receive land, would you probably expect to receive it in the near future? I would. If God says, hey, I'm going to give some land to you and to your descendants, I'm thinking, well, my children will probably step foot in that land. They'll probably own it before the end of their lives. Well, now God says that's not happening. Instead, they're going to have to be sojourners uh, or, or essentially aliens in another land that does not belong to them for over four centuries before they step foot in the land that God has for them. And this refers to Abraham's descendants being where? In Egypt. In Egypt for 400, I believe it's 430 years to be exact. So it's not the best news for Abraham to receive. Would you want to think that your descendants are going to have to go? I mean, if you're told land belongs to you, wouldn't you want to uh, hear that your children and their, your children's children are going to step foot in that land and inherit it? Would you want to be told that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to have to live somewhere else for four centuries before getting the land that, that God has promised to them? And all the while that they're not in the land promised to them, they're going to be in this other land as aliens, and they're going to suffer there, referring to their time in Egypt. Now, if I was Abraham, I'd be thinking this. I sure hope that there is a good reason that all descendants are suffering for over four centuries. <laughs> I sure hope that they are suffering for some godly people or some wonderful reason. I sure hope that there's some really good cause behind what my descendants have to go through. The news gets a little better in verse 14. God says, I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Uh, God was going to judge Egypt, we know that, through the plagues that were unleashed. It says that they were going to come out um, with great possessions. And what happened when the Hebrews or the Israelites left Egypt? Yeah, they plundered it, didn't they? They took much of the wealth of Egypt with them. Exodus twelve thirty six says Israel plundered the Egyptians when they left. And Abraham gets some personal news too. Verse 15, he says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And so it's kind of like Abraham has told this, all your descendants are going to suffer terribly, but at least you'll die peacefully you're not going to have to suffer. So I think fairly bittersweet, probably not the encouragement that, uh, that uh, Abraham was hoping to hear. I mean, it's nice to know he wouldn't suffer, but still I'm sure sad to know that his descendants would suffer so much. And now God tells Abraham why all of this is the case or why Israel couldn't go into the promised land any earlier than they did or why they had to suffer for 430 years. Verse 16. They, your descendants, shall come back here into the land in the fourth generation for the iniquity or the wickedness of the Amorites, which is an umbrella term for the Canaanites, for the wickedness of the Amorites or Canaanites is not yet complete. What is God basically saying here? He's saying the Canaanites haven't been bad enough yet. <laughs> they haven't engaged in enough wickedness yet. I still need to give them time to repent before I send your descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel, into the land of Canaan to wipe them out. So anytime that, and I don't want to sound too harsh, but let's say ignorant people condemn God for extermination, they will often cite Canaan and the Israelites being sent into Canaan to destroy the Canaanites as a strong criticism of God. You know, what kind of God could do this? And the thing, that, the thing that always shocks me about people when they want to criticize God's nature is the same things they're criticizing are the same things that should be causing them to fear God. 
And here's what I mean by that. When you hear a person who says, what kind of God could send a person to hell or what kind of God would send a nation in to exterminate another nation, what is the response to that? A God that you should fear, yet you have people that live in this hostility toward God. And instead of fearing him, they, they demonstrate this irreverence and criticism of him. It's absolutely shocking. Now, if God wanted to be merciful to the Canaanites, how long might he give them? What do you think? How long? Uh, weeks? Months? I mean, if he wanted to be really merciful, maybe a year? Maybe if he was super merciful, a decade? I mean, how long would you give your kids to shape up? <laughs> how, long do you, how long do you let your kids think about things before you punish them? How long do you send them to their room? You better shape up or I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to give you 17 years he gave them four centuries. He gave them over four centuries. And so think about what this looked like. Every single year that passed, the Canaanites got closer and closer to the point that God's patience was spent, that he could no longer put up with them. They engaged in more and more wickedness, which meant more and more of God's wrath being stored up against them for the Israelites to come in and unleash when they're to exterminate them. And finally, when God's patience is completely exhausted, he's going to unleash his righteous fury against them. The Israelites' suffering in Egypt is going to be over. He springs them forth from Egypt, sends them into the promised land to destroy the Canaanites. But until that happened, what could the Canaanites do? And a few of them did. Rahab did. The Gibeonites did. I'm not saying they did it. Uh, with integrity, <laughs> but they did. They feared God, and they turned to him, and they wanted to be spared of that judgment, and they were. There were Canaanites who were saved. Why give them all that time? Why give the Canaanites all that time when he knew they wouldn't repent? And I, I mean, to be candid with you, I don't know the answer. I just know that this is what God did. He could have given them 40 days. I mean, that's what he gave the Ninevites, which many people probably thought was too much. Jonah apparently thought that was too much. He thought they shouldn't have been given any time. He gave the Canaanites 400 years, and they didn't repent, and then he judged them. Now, here's what's interesting. God knew the Canaanites would not repent, but he still let the Israelites suffer in Egypt for over four centuries to give the Canaanites time to repent. And I think the Canaanites are one of the two best examples in Scripture of God patiently waiting for repentance from people that he knew would not repent. Now, I, I confess this is just my opinion, but you want to know what I think is the other best example in Scripture of individuals that God was patient with that he knew would not repent? I'm glad you want to know what I think. The Jews in Jesus' day. The Jews in Jesus' day. I'll share something with you and I'll connect the dots at the end. We had decided that the Fougeres and, uh, had told us how great NCFCA was, speech and debate, and we decided some time ago we'd have our kids join and there was a camp this past week, a few hours north in Renton, uh, for speech and debate, and I took my children, or my oldest three, and we were hosted by a wonderful Christian family. They invited us to stay with them, and I have permission to share this story. I'm going to share a photo with you, and I even have permission to share the photo, okay? I don't want any question in anyone's mind. In fact, the story I'm going to share, they had, they had posted on Facebook some time ago. So this family, they had adopted this girl from China, and I learned, and maybe some of you already know this, that in China, the parents expect the children to care for them when they're older. And obviously, that's honorable, that's commendable. 
But the problem is when parents have a child that is disabled or handicapped that they believe will not be able to care for them well when they're older, guess what they do with that child? They murder it or abort it. We would, people say, but I don't think we should use the world's language. They murder the child or they just give it up. They put it in an orphanage because they're limited regarding the number of children they can have. If they can only have one or maybe two children and, and that one child is handicapped or disabled, it's not going to be able to care for you, so you've got to try again, is their thinking. And so these orphanages in China, uh, horrific um, you know, circumstances, Her- horrific conditions is the word I'm looking for, horrific conditions for these children. Not only are they not shown affection, they're not, they're not cared for, they're not treated well, they can be beaten, um, they're not, dis- they're not uh, disciplined uh, in a loving way to prepare them to be um, reasonable members of society. And so they're terribly mistreated. They don't, they don't learn uh, how to function as normal children. And so the, this family we stayed with, they had adopted this girl with Down syndrome, a really sweet, wonderful girl that was around all the time and always wanted to talk and be with us. And they um, wanted to give her a better, a better future. But when they got her, having experienced those conditions in the orphanage in China, she behaved very poorly. And it sounds like most of the time that she was in their home initially was uh, disciplinary in nature, with them constantly having to train and correct her, albeit in a very loving and kind way. But constantly, even much of the time we were there, while she was, is now a much better child, I applauded them for how well-behaved I thought, I thought she was and impressed when contrasted when I was told what she was like when they received her. Um, she, she was... Uh, just much of her early years in their home was them training her, and that involved disciplining her to help her learn what to do and what not to do, things she'd never learned before. And so they, have a, they had a son. They also have a son named June. All their kids have Asian names or Chinese names, and they have a son named June, the same age as Johnny, and Johnny became very good friends with this young man, June. And June tells his parents because he's watching his sister, the Down syndrome girl. Her name was Aya. June was watching Aya be disciplined so much that he told his parents, he said, I feel bad that she's being disciplined so much. Can I be disciplined in her place? Can I take the punishment that she deserves? And so the parents said, you can, but with her, uh, she's disabled intellectually and she's probably not going to understand what you're doing. But if that's what you'd like to do, and he said, I would, I know that's what Christ did for me. And so I want to take the punishment that she deserves. And so he went and he stood in this corner for 30 minutes. Um, Go ahead and put that picture up. And this is what they posted on Facebook. And that's him in the corner. And that's, uh, his name's June. And then that's Aya there, the Down syndrome girl. And the mother, her name was Sunayan, when she was telling me this story, she said that when June was standing in the corner for Aya, Aya did not know why June was standing in the corner, or actually, Aya didn't know that June was standing in the corner for her, she thought that June was standing in the corner because he had done something wrong. And so the whole time that he was standing in the corner, she actually kept telling on him and saying that he wasn't standing in the corner the right way. She was mocking him and she was ridiculing him while he was taking the punishment that, that she deserved. Now, the reason I mention this, aside from just how much it made me think about Christ is it reminded me of the way that Jesus was treated. I mean, you see the parallels. You know, here is Jesus, and he wants to take the punishment for guilty people, even though he's innocent. People 
in particular the Jews, who did not understand what he was doing. I mean, as, as disabled as she might have been intellectually, those are the words that Sinai, the mother, used. The Jews were this disabled spiritually speaking. And what were they doing while Jesus was being crucified? Just mocking him, ridiculing him, criticizing him. And that's not really what's very surprising to me because man is terribly sinful. So to hear that people were mocking Christ while he was being criticized isn't really the part that stood out to me. The part that stood out to me was the patience that Christ showed to the people who would not repent. The long-suffering nature toward these people who would mock him and ridicule him. This parable is about Jews repenting and producing fruit, but God knew that that was not going to happen. The Jews were going to continue to reject Christ until the point that they cried out for his crucifixion. John 19, 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out and they said, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Believe it or not, you've almost got the Roman governor Pilate defending Jesus and trying to prevent him from being crucified by his own people. John 19, 12, from then on, Pilate sought, Pilate sought to release Jesus. Pilate trying to release him, and the Jews cry out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. The Jews rejected Jesus so strongly they began claiming that Caesar was their king and threatening Pilate to get him to crucify Christ. And to me, as I read this and reflect on it, I just think of how unbelievably patient and merciful God is to extend patience to these people that he knew, he knew would treat him this way, that would call out for his crucifixion, that would reject him as king, claim Caesar was their king, but he still gave them time to repent, knowing they would not repent. And then even after all this, after Jesus was crucified, after he was raised from the dead, he still gave them another 40 years to repent from 30 AD to 70 AD. Another 40 years on top of that for these Jews to repent, and they still wouldn't. And then finally, what happened? The Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem, slaughtered, slaughtered them, destroyed the temple. In other words, just like Jesus said would happen, what happened to the tree? It got cut down. It got cut down, just like Jesus warned against. God's patience, it is not evidence of his approval of our actions. One of the worst things people can think is God isn't punishing me or God isn't disciplining me right now, so what I'm doing must be okay. He must not have a problem with my behavior because he has not done anything about it yet. Instead, he is simply being patient to allow time for people to repent. One of the things that's interesting with this parable is kind of like the end of Jonah. It just kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Have you ever noticed that God is talking to Jonah? And you don't get a response. You, don't, you kind of wonder, how did Jonah respond? It's kind of like Luke 15, the parable of the two sons. And you wonder, how did the other son respond after the father spoke to him? 
We don't get to find out. And this parable is left like that. Verse 9, you don't have to turn there, but it says, then if the tree should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And then you look at verse 10 to see what? What happened? Did the tree produce fruit or was it cut down? Did the special care that the tree received, the extra patience from God, did it accomplish anything? And I just think that because this has application for us, the open-endedness is what? It's a question to you. It is a question to you. You should ask yourself, have you repented? Are you producing fruit? Or are you a tree that must be cut down? God is seeking fruit in our lives. The time to repent is now. If we connect verses 6 through 9 back to verses 1 through 5, which is how Jesus preached them, the next time that we hear about a tragedy that claims people's lives, we should examine ourselves. We should examine whether we have repented. We should examine whether we have begun producing fruit or are we simply trees that are taking up space that are going to end up being cut down. If you have any questions about this, if I can pray for you in any way after service, I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for your patience toward us, how long-suffering you are to give us time to repent and produce fruit. I thank you for that in my own life, Lord. You have been so long-suffering and patient with me personally, uh, and, uh, and I believe with others as well, Lord. We know that's your nature, but we also know that your nature involves justice, that you are just, that no sin escapes, uh, escapes punishment, whether it's a punishment Christ receives on our behalf or one that we receive ourselves. And so we thank you for your son, Lord, and your, your patience to allow us to repent and put our faith in him. And I pray we wouldn't try that patience, that we wouldn't test it, that we would recognize whether we have surrendered our lives to your son. For those who haven't, grant them repentance, convict them, uh, bring them to faith in Christ. I, we pray they could be born again today. And for those who have repented, help us to produce fruit, not that we would be saved by it, but that we would glorify you through it, Lord, that our lives would be uh, vessels of, of glory for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.